We are in the series called Lead. If you're visiting, uh, we have been working through this series of Follow, following Peter the disciple. And now we are moving on from the Gospels, where we looked at that, to the book of Acts and looking at Peter the leader, uh, Peter the apostle. And so let me, uh, we're going to read some portion from Acts chapter 3 today, but let me just set up the text for you before we read it by, I guess, asking this question, what is it that Peter wants to lead us to? What is it that Peter wants to point us to if he is looking to lead us to something? And to understand that context, um, let me just share this about our, our society that we're living in right now. We are living in a very secular society today, uh, not just in New Zealand, but it's common throughout the Western world uh, that people more and more, statistically it's a fact, that are walking away from God um, and abandoning faith in God. Uh, interestingly, this week, the Department of Statistics in New Zealand have just released some 2018 census data about our religious beliefs in this country. Uh, this week, I, I looked it up, 48% of New Zealanders have ticked the box at the 2018 census, ticked the box there of no religion. So that's on top of uh, other religions, Muslims, Hindus, etc. This is a straight 48% of people who now identify as secular in this country. Uh, that's changed from 42% in 2013. So there's an obvious trend that is going on uh, in New Zealand, and I'll show you in a minute, around the world, uh, moving away from a relationship with God. Uh, let me also illustrate this with what happened uh, about 10 years ago on those famous London double-decker buses that you'd know. Uh, the Atheist Society in the UK put this these slogan, this sign, on the uh, double-decker bus. There's probably no God. Now stop worrying and enjoy your life. So that slogan on those buses was riding around central London uh, for a period of time led by the Atheist Society. And what's fascinating, if, if you look at that sign, the inference is this. As we abandon our relationship with God, there's a benefit to it. You will worry less and you'll enjoy your life more. That's what the sign is suggesting, and that's what many people are subscribing to today. But here's the problem. It hasn't worked. It's not working. As we become more secular in Western society, we are worrying more and more and becoming more and more anxious. Now, that's just not my opinion. That is the opinion of our world leaders. Jacinda Ardern, our prime minister, launched the famous wellness budget uh, just a few months ago in May of 2019. And she uh, talked about, about this problem of anxiety and wellness. And she said this, and I'll quote this for you, put on the screen. The issue of mental health and well-being more generally is a challenge that the World Health Organization says, watch this, will be the world's biggest health problem by 2030. Here we have a society that's subscribing to moving away from God, believing it will bring less anxiety. But the facts are that what we're seeing is more anxiety. And even the World Health Organization is acknowledging the issues that are being raised. So here's a question I want to throw out there as we get into the text today. How do you get well? How do you remove anxiety in your life? How do you live with a real joy and purpose and meaning? The Bible says the only way you can do that is to get into a personal relationship with your creator. The Bible says that we were designed by God to be in a relationship with him. 
Anything else we look at or look to to try and get peace and lack of anxiety in our lives just simply will not work. Uh, As we deny God, we will struggle more and more. And the statistics are pointing that out, that that is exactly what is happening. So let's bring it back to Peter. Let's bring it back to what he's looking to lead us into. Peter, in his letter that we call 1 Peter, wrote these words in 1 Peter 3 about the whole reason that Christ died for us. And here is what Peter says. For Christ died for sins, and in an abbreviated gospel version, he says this, for Christ died for sins to bring you to God. Friends, this is what Peter wants to do. He wants to bring us into a relationship with God, just as he, in that follow series that we looked at, has also been in a relationship with God. Now, you might be a Christian who's been here or has been a Christian for 50 years. You might be a young person who's been a Christian for five years. You might even be a person who's become a Christian in the last five hours. But wherever you are on that spectrum of maturity in your Christian faith, or even if you're checking out Christianity and that's why you're coming to this church, This message is so relevant for you because no matter where we are on the spectrum in our relationship with God, the key to real joy, the key to real happiness is to move closer into God and allow that happiness to work through us. And that's what Acts 3 is going to show us today. And we're going to read the text in a minute, but let me just uh, tell you what's happened before because we're going to start reading from verse 11 because it's such a big chapter. But here's what has happened before we start from verse 11. Uh, Peter and John have gone into the temple. It's 3 p.m. They go in every day through the beautiful gate. And they go in there to pray and to worship in the temple. All the Jewish people go up at 3 o'clock every day. But as Peter and John work through the beautiful gate, uh, here is um, this lame man, this crippled man on the ground. And we read in Acts chapter 4, the next chapter that we'll look at next week, he actually is 40 years old. He's been, so, so every day for many, many years, perhaps you know, since birth, he's been placed there begging for mercy. And in fact, he says to Peter and John, because he's given up trying to be healed, and he says to Peter and John, just give me some money. But Peter and John look at him and said, money we're not going to give you, but here's what we're going to give you instead. In the name of Jesus Christ, walk. And this crippled man, this lame man, suddenly jumps up and it actually says at the end, I think in verse 8, that he jumps around and he's praising God. So here is this miracle which has just happened. And then let's read from verse 11 what happens from there. While the man, so this is the man who's been healed, held on to Peter and John, all the people were astonished and came running to them in the place called Solomon's Colonnade. So Solomon's Colonnade is in the temple. When Peter saw this, he said to them, Fellow Israelites, why does this surprise you? Why do you stare at us if by our own power or godliness we had made this man walk? The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of our fathers, has glorified his servant Jesus. You handed him over to be killed, and you disowned him before Pilate, though he had decided to let him go. You disowned the holy and righteous one and asked that a murderer be released to you. You killed the author of life, but God raised him from the dead. We are witnesses of this. By faith in the name of Jesus, this man whom you see and know was made strong. It is Jesus' name and the faith that comes through him that has completely healed him, as you can all see. 
Now, fellow Israelites, I know that you acted in ignorance, as did your leaders. But this is how God fulfilled what he had foretold through all the prophets, saying that his Messiah would suffer. Repent then and turn to God so that your sins may be wiped out, that times of refreshing may come from the Lord. Peter wants to lead us into a relationship or a stronger relationship with God. And I want us to see in the text today that we've looked at, there are four ways that Peter is looking to bring those people then and us today to bring you to God, to bring us into a personal, stronger relationship with God. A disrupting event we'll look at, dropping our conditions, the third, reinvigorating our life, and lastly, meditating on what we have. So let's look at the first one. Let's look at this disrupting event and how it is used by Peter to catch their attention, to talk about this relationship with God. Uh, One of my favorite illustrations of a disrupting event to change a view is what happened to me many years ago. Uh, My wife Bronwyn and I, we were on a Kontiki tour around Europe. This is before kids when we could do these sort of things. And uh, and some of you might have been on a Kontiki tour and know that they can get a little bit wild from time to time. And this one lived up to its reputation and was getting a little bit wild. Uh, But Kontiki tours, there's New Zealanders and Australians and uh, Americans and Canadians mainly who go on these European trips. And so we were in Vienna and it just so happened we were in Vienna on my birthday. And so the tour guide, and we're all, all 40 of us from the bus were in a room, and they were cooking the local Austrian delicacy, which is Venus Nitschel. So they were cooking this Venus Nitschel, which, by the way, is thin strips of meat, veal, that they sort of put in egg and flour and breadcrumbs. Thank you. <laughs> and, and they're putting them in, and they cook them. It's beautiful. They put them in a fry pan, and that's Venus Nitschel. So because it was my birthday, uh, they decided to do me first. So they cook this in the kitchen, which is sort of over there, and we're all sitting here, and they bring out my first, my Venus Nitschel first. And then they sort of look at me, and then they go, the courier and the staff and the kitchen people go back in to cook the other 30-odd Venus Nitschels for the rest of the Kontiki group. Well, here was a young guy called Jason beside me, and Jason just looked at me, and he just said, oh, Tim, I'm just starving. I'm just so hungry, and look at your lovely food. And so knowing that one day I would have the chance to tell you the story and that you would think better of me, (laughs) I passed my Venus Nitschel to Jason. Jason absolutely tucks in. He just gobbles it down. And then the rest of the Venus Nitschels all come out, all the servings. But as they're coming out, the chef and the tour guide are laughing at me. And I'm saying, why are you laughing at me? It's my birthday. You're not meant to laugh at me on my birthday. And they say, because... Here's what you didn't know. The chef got an old bit of cardboard. And he put the egg on it and the breadcrumbs and the flour and dipped it in everything you dip it in. And that's what he served you. Jason's right beside me. Jason suddenly looks at his plate, which is four-fifth eaten, and realized that he has eaten all cardboard. I ended up having the last laugh on that one. But Jason, I think, was put off his appetite for the rest of the Kontiki tour, never quite knowing what it was he was eating. I suspect today, he was only 17, I suspect that young man today still checks what's in his um, plate that's been served him from time to time. That story illustrates how his, in a very simple way, his, he had a disrupting event in his life, which, at least when it comes to eating Venus Nitschel, <laughs> changed his worldview. Now, why do I tell you that story? Because it is exactly what is going on here. 
We know that this man has been sitting at this gate for perhaps 40 years. Now, I worked that out this week. That's 14,600 days, potentially, this lame man has been sitting at the beautiful gate. And what is, what is incredible, what is going on here, is the people are utterly astonished, it says in verse 11, about what they see in front of them. By the way, that word astonished in the Greek, uh, it says even the air, A-I-R, even the air was astonished at this. Um, so there's, there's just incredulity, incredulity around this whole thing that people are looking at this lame man who's now walking and dancing and jumping with joy. People know crippled people don't walk. This should not have happened, but it's happened. And so this is a disrupting event that Peter is about to use to get these people's attention. But let me throw this question out as we're looking at it. Let me just throw this question out to think about. Why does God flex? Why does God flex at this time and use his powers through Peter and John to heal this lame man? I mean, there's miracles needed all around this place. He's not the only lame man in Jerusalem. But why does God choose to flex and use and show his miraculous powers at this time? The answer is because the Jews are going into the temple. They're going in there at three o'clock for their prayer time. And they're going up there, and one of the prayers that they're going in to pray is, Oh God, give us our Messiah. And what God is trying to show them is, and to say to them, I already have. You missed him. And what Peter is about to tell them is effectively launch off this changing a worldview, and he sees their astonishment, and he steps up, and he tells them that they've missed their Messiah and to come to their Messiah. And in doing so, there's this disrupting event to bring them into this personal relationship with Jesus Christ. Bringing it back to us today, what he's showing them and us is walking away from God does not work, just as we're seeing in this country today. Because here is what he says. And I love what he does here in verse 19. He says, repent then and turn to God so that your sins may be wiped out. And here it is, that times of refreshing may come from the Lord. Friends, this is Peter's wellness policy. This is Peter's wellness budget. Peter is wanting to lead these people and lead us today and saying, if you want this time of refreshment, you won't get it through anything else than what you were designed to be in the first place. You were designed to be in a relationship with God. And now I've got your attention through this, this disrupting event. I'm going to use that to tell you how to get times of refreshing. By the way, the Greek word for times of refreshing, it's one word, and it's a long word, anapsuxis. And the reason I share that Greek word with you is because it's the only time it's used in the whole of the New Testament. And so you've got to ask the question, why would Peter use anapsuxis when he easily could have used another Greek word to get his point across? I think the answer is because anapsuxis is a lovely word. It means coolness. It means uh, breathing space. It means reviving with fresh air or reviving with fresh water. It's a time of refreshing. And I think that Peter is remembering back to his own growth in relationship with Jesus. I think Peter is remembering back to what Matthew talked about in Matthew 16, verse 18, when Peter is uh, with Jesus at Caesarea Philippi. 
And Craig shared that with us in a, in a message a few weeks ago. And remember, Peter goes to Jesus and Jesus, the disciples are there and Jesus says, well, who do you say that I am? And Peter answers and says, you are the living Christ, the son of God. And Jesus says to Peter, he looks at him, he says, you were Simon, I'm now calling you Peter, on this rock, on that confession, I will build my church. And I think that is a pivotal moment in Peter the disciple's life of his personal relationship with Jesus. But why does he use the word times of refreshing? Because I've been to Caesarea Philippi, where this happened in Matthew 16. And Caesarea Philippi is an amazing place. You come from the desert, from the aridness, from the lack of water. You walk up this hill and you come to the stunning location at Caesarea Philippi. There is water flowing through. It is cool. There is greenery. It is everything really physically that anapsuxis means in Greek. It is a physical, wonderful place to be. I think Peter is going back to Matthew 16 and saying, that personal relationship, that time of refreshing physically and spiritually I got there, you too can have it here today, spiritually. Times of refreshing may come from the Lord. Now let me apply this to us, this disrupting event and what it can do for us. I don't know about you and your life, but I know in my life there are two particular narratives that keep playing out in my life. The first one goes something like this. It says, I can run my own life. And an example of, you know, and I speak to many people, and I think a lot of us, we know that we can't, but there's another part of us that's saying, well, we want to and we can. And it's very easy, I think, for us to ask God for a bit of guidance from time to time, maybe come to God for some inspiration. But basically, we think we're competent to run our own lives. Here's another one that I think we battle with today. The world is all that matters. So popularity is everything. Having money is the most important thing. A celebrity, physical beauty. We know as Christians that it's a battle going on, but it's still a battle to push away from those two worldviews. I can run my own life and the world is all that matters. But here is the point that I want to get across with you and share with you today. We will never really meet God unless something comes in and breaks and shatters those worldviews that are on our screen today. And sometimes through the grace of God, he brings things in to shatter those worldviews. And we don't understand them at the time, but we look back later and realize it is the grace of God that is allowing us to shatter those worldviews and come back to him. Can I tell you what will shatter the first one, that I can run my own life worldview? Success, surprisingly. It's funny how you speak to people who have run their lives so successfully and got to the pinnacle of where they wanted to get to. And they get there and they're miserable. They get there and they realize that what they thought would give them peace, what they thought would give them joy and wellness has turned out it doesn't work. Uh, Brad Pitt was quoted just in the paper this week, the famous actor, that he has been going to AA. He's got alcohol problems uh, and uh, he's having to go to AA meetings. And I, I'm not knocking Brad Pitt. It's fantastic that he realized he has an issue and he's going to AA. But it's another example that here is one of the most successful actors in the world. I mean, older people know Brad Pitt. Younger people know of Brad Pitt and the movies are out today. Here is a man with immense success. If anyone can run their own life, it's him. But it turns out that he can't. 
It doesn't give him the peace and the shalom and the well-being that he's after. So success will shatter your first worldview. And here's the second thing that will shatter the world is all that matters view: Trouble. When trouble comes into our lives from time to time, really serious trouble, we look at it and we say, oh my goodness, there's got to be something more than this. This world is not enough. I can't survive in this world. There's got to be something bigger than this. And so what Peter is, is effectively doing, he is, and that's an application to us, but he is bringing this disrupting event and using it as a launch pad to share other things to bring them in. And where this man is holding on to Peter and John, Peter is effectively, he is talking to this astonished group of people. Let me share with you the second uh, uh, point that Peter is sharing uh, that shows us how we can grow in our relationship with God, with Jesus. And the second one is dropping our conditions. So let's pull back for a minute. Let's assume that uh, we've had this disrupting event. Let's maybe we realize we need it. We need to come back to God even without a disrupting event. And I think it's very easy for us to say, okay, now what do we do? God, you've got our attention. What are we going to do now? And so we read and we think and we reflect and we come to church. But we need to be careful not to do one thing. We need to be careful not to seek someone who meets our own needs. It's very easy for us to come to God and say, okay, God, here's my agenda. I know exactly what I need to draw closer to you, and I know what will make my life work, and come in with our own conditions to God and what we want him to be. And I think this is all over this text that we've just read. Because in the background of this discussion that Peter is having with these Jewish people is Acts chapter 1. And in Acts chapter 1, we are showing that these, these, the disciples, the Jews, are actually looking for their Messiah to come in and overthrow the Romans. That's the thing they think they most need. That is their condition of a Messiah, that he's a political Messiah that comes in with a sword physically and overthrows the Romans. That is why they say, that's what in Acts chapter 1 verse 6, Luke records them saying, then they, these are the disciples, gathered around him and asked him, Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom to Israel? They're expecting a political Messiah. They're expecting that their biggest problem is physical. But Peter knows that this is not their biggest problem. And he says it back in our chapter, chapter 3, when he calls Jesus his servant. What Peter is showing them and getting them to drop their conditions is, you think your biggest issue is physical slavery? Your biggest issue is not that. Your biggest issue is spiritual slavery. The thing that is going to condemn you and remove you from a relationship with God is sin, is your spiritual slavery. There's always going to be another political leader who's going to come over the top of you. If I get rid of the Romans, there's going to be other kingdoms that will come in and conquer you. But what Peter is showing them is you need a servant to take your sin for you and fix the biggest issue that you have, namely the problem of sin in your life. That is the God that you need. And that is why he is, I think, showing them and us that to bring us to God, we need to drop our conditions of what we think we need. Stop asking God for what you think you need and allow this God to give you what you most need. Put another way, don't come to God to reach your own agenda, but be drawn into his agenda. And I love this, this phrase, when we're coming to God, be open to his unmanageability. 
Be willing to accept you can't manage God and be open to allowing that unmanageability to be in your life. There's an old movie, one of my favorite illustrations of this dropping your conditions. There's an old movie called The Stepford Wives. I think it was a remake, but that's Nicole Kidman on your screen at the moment. Uh, Nicole Kidman and I think Matthew Broderick uh, were in the remake of The Stepford Wives. And it's a It's an interesting movie because Nicole Kidman is married, I think, to Matthew Broderick in the movie, and she comes into this town in America called Stepford. And if you've seen the movie, you'll know this. She comes in and she is amazed at the wives in the town of Stepford. They are perfect. They never argue with their husbands. They're always beautifully dressed and look stunning. Their houses are always clean. Everything about these Stepford wives is quite remarkable. And it doesn't take you long to work out, no, that's not normal. And so what happens is the movie goes on. At the end of the movie, she actually finds out that they're robots, that they look like perfect wives on the outside, but they're actually robots that the husbands have pre-programmed and designed to be the perfect Stepford wife. But here's the problem with the Stepford wife. There's no real relationship. There's no relationship between the husband and the wife. The wife is just a Stepford wife who does exactly what the husbands want, and there's never a relationship. And the point that that I think is relevant to us is sometimes it's easy for us to look for a Stepford God. We want to design God our way. But the problem with a Stepford God is this. If you have a Stepford God, which is effectively just you at the end of the day, if you have that sort of God in your life, and you allow him to never cross your will, he can never give you what you most need. And the thing we most need is for God to cross our wills and transform us from the inside out and make us into the people that he wants us to be. And so I think what Peter is showing with his example of this political versus servant king is the same that what we can see today. We mustn't come to God with our own conditions, but come to God not asking him to be a step for God, but asking him to be the God who will work in us. By the way, if you want to know how to meet a God who will disagree with you and cross your will, just go and read the Bible. It won't take us very long to see in the Bible the different things that God is calling us to do that we say, oh my goodness, I never realized I had to live like this. Third example that Peter shares on how to bring us to God, how to grow and our personal relationship, how to get this wellness that we're really looking for, is to reinvigorate our life. And I want you to see, quite simply, that this miracle that's led led us into this discussion, this miracle of this man walking, you know, it's not so much a reversal of, of, of a problem of a man walking and a man being lame. It's not a reversal, but it's more a restoration of nature. What's going on here is that, just like Jesus' miracles, Peter has performed this miracle, and what he is doing, I think there's a bigger picture here. He is showing us that Jesus' mission, evidenced in this miracle and Jesus' miracles, is to restore us back to what we once were in Genesis 1 and 2. Restore us back to the Garden of Eden. In the Garden of Eden, there was no lameness. There was no blind people. There was no sin or death or mourning or pain. And one of Jesus' missions that he came to do, the mission he came to do, was to restore humanity back to Genesis 1 and 2 before the fall. And so you look at the relationship in the garden, uh, the relationship with nature, there was no death, the relationship with each other, 
Adam and Eve were naked and unashamed. The relationship was self. There was joy in their lives. The relationship with God, there was no barriers like there is today. And these miracles are an example of restoration back to pre-fall. Now, why do I share that with you? Because we're all called to be part of this mission. We're all called as Christians to join God's agenda and be part of this bigger mission to reinvigorate society and restore the kingdom of God. And young people in particular who are looking for excitement, there is nothing more exciting than being with God and his agenda and being in the great co-mission, commission of Matthew 28, and working with God in relationship, reinvigorating our lives. The last way that we can grow in our relationship with God, and by the way, here's a quote from Tim Keller that I'll just briefly read to you because I think it's a great example. Tim Keller says this, still under reinvigorating our lives. If the most important thing in your life is your needs and your interests, if there's nothing more significant than you, if there's nothing you would die for, if there's nothing that makes you wrestle, if there's nothing that makes you change your mind, if the highest thing in your life is to be comfortable, is to be happy, is to be nice looking, is to have people like you, is to have money, if that's the thing you're living for, ironically, you're going to feel more and more insignificant. The way we reinvigorate our life is to be part of the Great Commission. Lastly, how do we get brought to God? Meditate on what we have. I want you to see in this incredible text, because it's so, it's so easy for us. We can hear a sermon like this and we say, right, I'm going to surrender to God. I'm going to grow my relationship with him. I'm going to start going to church all the time. I'm going to read my Bible. I'm going to clean up my life. I'm going to do great things for God. Can I tell you that you will soon be in despair when you're trying to do it that way? Here is the way that we get brought to God, and it is by meditating on what we have. And Peter is showing that to us here. Peter sets it up beautifully. He talks about how they handed them, uh, Jesus over to be killed and disowned him before Pilate. He says to them, you disowned the holy and righteous one. And look at the next verse, verse 15. He says, you killed the author of life. Now, what a statement that is. What would you be thinking right now? If you're in the audience today and Peter stands up and looks at all of you and says, oh, by the way, you've just killed the author of life. You would be thinking things are not going to go well for me from here on in, right? That's not what Peter says at the end of this. It's remarkable. He says, but repent then and turn to God so that your sins may be wiped out. That is a remarkable verse to finish what we're talking about today. Because Peter is saying, despite everything you've done, you've killed the author of life. If you turn to God, he will forgive you and wipe away everything that you've done wrong. How do we grow in this relationship with God? How do we really move forward? The answer is to see how beautiful Jesus is. To see that despite our sin and how sinful we are, we have a savior that overrides it all. And when you look at that and look at how much he loves us despite us, what that does is it will begin to melt us from the inside out. And it will melt us and make us want to live for him, not out of duty, not out of obligation, but because we just love him. I want to finish with this story from one of the great Baptist pastors of the late 1800s, a guy called Charles Spurgeon. And Charles Spurgeon uh, tells a story of how he got converted it's a wonderful story, and it's a great way to finish what we're talking about today. 
Uh, Spurgeon, this is 1850, he was a young man, he was in London, and uh, it was a big snowstorm in London. And he went to his local, I think it was a Methodist church, and uh, the text, the, the, the minister didn't turn up. Obviously, the snowstorm was so bad, the minister didn't turn up. And the text that the, I think he was a shoemaker, stood up to read. There's only about 12 of them in the church. And the text was from Isaiah 45:22, which says this. Look unto me and be ye saved, all the ends of the earth. And Spurgeon goes on to recount what this man says. Then the good man followed up his text in this way. Look unto me, I'm sweating great drops of blood. Look unto me, I'm hanging on the cross. Look unto me, I'm dead and buried. Look unto me, I rise again. Look unto me, I ascend to heaven. Look unto me, I'm sitting at the Father's right hand. O poor sinner, look unto me, look unto me. Spurgeon goes on. When he had managed to spin out about 10 minutes or so, he was at the end of his tether. Then he looked at me under the galley, and I dare say with so few present, he knew me to be a stranger. Just fixing his eyes on me as if he knew all my heart, he said, young man, you look very miserable. Well, I did, but I'd not been accustomed to have remarks made from the pulpit on my personal appearance before. However, it was a good blow struck right home. He continued, and you'll always be miserable, miserable in life and miserable in death. If you don't obey my text, but if you obey now, this moment, you will be saved. Then lifting up his hands, he shouted as only a primitive Methodist could. Young man, look to Jesus Christ. Look, look, look. You have nothing to do but look and live. Spurgeon finishes. He said, I saw at once the way of salvation. I know now what else he said. I did not take much notice of it. I was so possessed with that one thought. I'd been waiting to do 50 things. But when I heard that word, look, what a charming word it seemed to me. Oh, how I looked until I could almost have looked my eyes away. How do we grow? How do we grow in our relationship with God and be brought to God? Look unto him. Look at our beautiful Jesus. Look at the fact that he has forgiven us for all of our sins. Allow these disrupting events to come into our lives from time to time and see them as the grace of God to shake us up. Drop our conditions of who we want God to be and learn to fit into his agenda, not ours. Reinvigorate our life. Meditate on who he is and allow, to transform, allow that to transform us from the inside out. That's how we grow. That's how we get brought to God. And that is how we get well, because that is what we were designed to be in the first place. Let me pray for us. Father, what a text. Speak to us, we pray. We confess sometimes that we look to many other things for wellness and lack of anxiety. But we are thank you, thankful that Peter would show us and lead us into how to grow in our relationship with you. I pray for all of us today, we might be people who look, who look, who look unto you, even to our eyes are tired from looking, and understand and look at your beauty. And may that melt us from the core of our hearts. And out of love, may we go and serve you today. We pray this in Jesus' precious name. Amen.